Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and today we're joined by the head honcho at Bar None Records and founder of Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help, Glenn Morrow. We talk about his career in music as a musician, as well as head of a record label. He's worked with some great bands and former guests like the Mendoza Line and L1011, and Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help has just released his second album. We discussed the new difficulties releasing music during the COVID era, both from the musicians and the label's perspective. Follow Glenn and Barnon on social media. Follow us at Performance ANX. And if you like the show, consider getting us a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Subscribe, rate, review, and let's get right into Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help on Performance Anxiety on Pantheon Podcast Network. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, hi, I'm Glenn Morrow, and I'm in a band called Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. We have a, uh, our second album is called Simply Two, and when you have a name like Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help, you need a, a short album title. And uh, yeah, take it away. It's just an audio thing, right? Right, so, yeah. Yes, audio only, so it's uh, nice and easy. Lighting doesn't matter. <laughs> I know, I just get that like glow in my glasses from the, from the yeah, monitor. Me, me too. <laughs> so, oh man. In fact, I gotta, now, now I'm looking at these, I got to clean these. Ugh. God, let me just keep them off. Oh man, so how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I, uh, Good. I just checked out a couple of your... Uh, Podcasts. Oh, and awesome. I was happy to see L1011 and Mendoza Line, both bands that were oh. I've worked with, and oh, awesome. And the Mendoza Line, I was just, oh, I was in hysterics. <laughs> I, I always wanted someone to do a whole podcast <laughs> series on them because I think their story is just so insane, it, and I, you know, you know, they're one of those bands that back when they were active, I knew of them, but. I didn't get into them. I didn't. I, I didn't know. I didn't know about them. And now, going back and listening, the, the music is awesome. But this, like you said, the story is just crazy. It's like it's like they just seem to sabotage themselves at at, at every chance possible. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they're also at the same time they're you know, I mean, I've some of my favorite people that I've you know worked with oh, awesome. on a human level. I'm still like, you know, friends with all of them. And, uh, Oh, that's good. That's you know, you can't say that. I mean, not like I'm enemies with other bands, but you know, right. you work with a band and then, you know, your time ends and you go off and live your lives. But yeah. I've, you know, I've stayed in touch with, with Tim and, 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 uh, recently got reconnected with Pete and, oh, and uh, as well as well, we did a couple records with Shannon after the, uh, oh. band broke up too so oh cool. actually we've done records with tim so 
So thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I appreciate it. I've been listening to the new album and uh, been really enjoying it. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. I, you know, we, we worked on it a really long time. It was very, uh, you know, spent a lot of time just getting the songs just right. And then it was pretty much done right as the pandemic kicked in. Oh, geez. And uh, actually, there's a song you haven't heard that we're, we've just added to the record. I'll make sure you get it. Oh, cool. Um, that uh, I just thought, oh, I got to have something new on there. And well, Chris Damey remixed one song. Okay. And that sort of made one song kind of new. Yeah. Uh, Cause he switched it up a lot. And, okay. uh, but then uh, I just recorded another song just with the guitar player and a socially uh, in back of the same studio, but you know, doing everybody in a little room by themselves. Oh, wow. Everybody isolated, huh? Yeah. But the cool <laughs> thing was we did it from, you know, the whole thing in like three and a half hours. Oh, wow. know, I taught him the song and, we came up with an arrangement that, that totally shifted from what I thought it was going to be to what it ended up being. And oh, cool. um, it was kind of cool. That's, that's really so it felt like a way forward in a way, you know, it felt like I've been woodshedding for 11 months. <laughs> this is what I learned. This is, you know, sort of, yeah, it was fun. Oh, that's awesome. Now, before, before we get too deep into it, I want to know a little bit more about how you got to where you are. So like what, got you into music in the first place? Was there a lot of music playing in the household when you were growing up? There wasn't. Um, I mean, my dad had been big into music, but I think, you know, he had like all these 78s like jammed up in the top of a closet. <laughs> that, And then, you know, we had like the records like everybody had of, of who had parents my age, which was like Herb Albert, Whipped Cream and Other Delights. Oh, yep. And uh, maybe some Frank Sinatra. And uh, actually, there was a radio station, WNEW FM in, or AM in New York that he used to listen to. And they used to play this guy, Louis the Cab Driver, had this record. You find it, it's on YouTube. <laughs> Louis the Cab Driver. And the song was called uh, I Got a Rose Between My Toes for Walking from Walking Barefoot Through the Hot House to You, Pretty Baby. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's quite a number. <laughs> I have to see if I can work that into this show somehow. <laughs> I got a rose between my toes from walking barefoot through the hot house to you, pretty baby. I got a torn right near my corn from walking barefoot through the hot house to you. And when I fell into the tomatoes, I seen her heart skip a beat. I knew that love was born when she pulled a torn of the flower out of my feet. I didn't even feel no well, yeah, pain I just, there was you know, kind of discovered radio. AM radio and around the time of like, I don't know, Ruby Tuesday and uh, Snoopy and the Red Baron and stuff like that was oh. playing probably like 65, maybe six. Uh, I, I actually kind of missed, you know, the Beatles, like the way everybody listen to the Beatles like with you know I was kind of suspicious of them until about <laughs> Yellow Submarine and, and Magical Mystery Tour you know I'd, that's because I didn't I was like the oldest kid and you know my father wasn't into them and I was like okay well that that's when I actually really start to like the Beatles myself those albums that the early stuff, I mean, it's it's good, but it's not the stuff that I go to and listen to. It's well, I, I've gone back now. I love I love it all, and, yeah. and you can revisit it all. And in some ways, the earlier songs, just as constructions, are better. You know, not production wise. You know, the production got more evolved, but yeah, 
just solid kind of pop songwriting. Yeah. I mean, I think Revolver is probably my favorite Beatles album. Oh, yeah. That's an amazing album. The English version. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, with the extra. With the, with the extra tracks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, when they really released those recently, they remastered them. It's all pretty much the same now, right? It's They put all the extra stuff on there at this point, didn't they? Yeah. Well, now it's too much now. Like, I, I, I just, you know, Abbey Road with all the, <laughs> you know, five versions of yeah. Her Majesty. I just, I don't know. It, I don't know how many times I would listen to that. But. Yeah. <laughs> so did you start off by playing guitar or how did you get into actually playing uh, instruments? I sort of, I think I, you know, when I was a kid, my sister was a really good piano player, classical. So oh, wow. I kind of avoided, uh, you know, I was a little intimidated by the piano, <clears throat> but there was a nylon string acoustic guitar in the house and, you know, eventually I learned to play like, you know, a couple of songs and, but really just, I sort of had like a fantasy of making music and imagining, you know, I was <laughs> jumping around my room making music, but it wasn't until I got to college that I actually started attempting to really learn chords. And uh. I mean, I wrote a few songs, you know, as, as a kid, but yeah, in college, I started, you know, trying to it seemed like a, something that be, became an obsession pretty quickly. And is that what, is that when you started playing in bands and, and playing out and gigging? And yeah, kind of just, you know, like when I went to the university of Rhode Island for two years, we had okay. a, a band called the jaded lovers that was kind of, you know, inspired by the modern lovers. I oh, think. Okay. Okay. But they, it didn't sound like the modern lovers, I, I, but you know, punk rock hadn't really, it was like, you know, before, you know, punk rock and the Ramones and uh, Patti Smith. So it was more seventies hippie folk mixed with, uh, the velvet underground or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> Although we did do talking heads, love goes to a building on fire. Cause I saw them really early on and oh, cool. I had like a demo of theirs. Oh, wow. Cause I was helping them get, try to get gigs. So I, I learned, uh, love goes to a building on fire. Probably the first person to ever, Cover it. That's all I got. <laughs> song, I think. That's awesome. So you Back were out. When they were a trio. So you were out and, and experiencing live music as well as uh, gigging and, and, and learning guitar. Yeah. <laughs> the first show. Well, I don't know how much you want to get into all this, but. Oh, I love hearing about people's first shows. It was uh, Almond Brothers with Dwayne. Wow. And it was like days before the Fillmore East live. Oh. So I literally was at the South Mountain Arena in in New Jersey, um, in South Mountain ice ice rink. Oh my! And gosh. they were wheeling those amp, you know, those road cases that are on the cover of the Live at the Fillmore record. Yeah, yeah. And I, I touched one of those road cases. Little oh. did I know, you know, that was like. And then oh. they were they were out in the middle. The opening band was Edgar Winters, White Trash, and the headliners were Buddy Miles. Oh wow! Yeah, so that was my first concert. That's amazing. What? That's a hell of a way to break into it. Yeah, yeah. Man, first show you get a twenty five minute mountain jam. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. I already had the Donovan version. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So when did you just, you start actually thinking this could be something that you wanted to do? I went, uh, when, when I was at URI, I was like, I, I knew I wanted, I didn't, I wasn't going to make it there four years. It just <laughs> didn't feel, uh, like where I wanted to be. And I, I really felt the, I grew up in New Jersey, so I really felt the pull 
of Manhattan once I kind of removed myself from its orbit, even though I, it wasn't like I went into Manhattan all the time as a kid, but yeah. at any rate, uh, I felt the pull and, you know, I'd be reading like the village voice ads and yeah. reading uh, rock scene magazine and reading about, you know, television and the Ramones and Patty Smith and, you know, each one of those things when they came out, they were just like revelations. Yeah. And John, you know, you see a picture of Jonathan Richmond, you're just like, I want to know what that, you know, I want to know what that, what, what is that? I want yeah. to know what that is. Yeah. You know? And, uh, there were so few records that I went and saw television at, uh, CBGBs and talking heads. And, uh, oh, wow. yeah, you know, I was down at CBG, saw all the bands down there and Peru at Max's and oh, cool. Sid Vicious hanging out at the bar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, the heartbreakers at, at Max's. So I saw all that stuff. It was, but I was like the kid kind of peering, you know, into the future. And, but eventually got this band going sort of by accident. I sat in with a band called Tin Can. And like I said, I actually attempted to uh, book Talking Heads. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they didn't really have a booking agent. They really hadn't played outside of New York City. And I went up to like RISD where they had been students to try to get like the school to to. to do a show, you know, yeah, yeah. it seemed like a no brainer. Yeah. And the guy, there was some kind of sort of professor who was somehow in charge of the whole thing. He was like, and I, you know, I had all these clippings, like pictures of them with Warhol and yeah, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, come on, what do you think? And they're like, man, eh, we don't really do popular music. And I was like, wait a minute, man, you did the Paul winter consort. <laughs> and he's like, that was a mistake. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. The Paul Winter concert was a bridge too far. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, so you you're deciding that th this is something that you want to do? Yeah, I was writing more songs all the time, and I I met this band Tin Can, which had Rob Norris, who had, was actually in like. The, like a late version of the Velvet Underground with Doug Yule oh, you know, wow. after Lou, Lou and uh, Lou had left. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he was in the Spencer Ken and we became friends and we kept seeing each other. You know, I'd, I'd go see James Brown and he'd be there. I'd go see Philip Glass. He'd be there. Oh, wow. And so I sort of wor warmed, wormed my way in and said, Hey, maybe you guys could back me up and do some recording on these songs. So then the guitar player maybe was slightly offended because he was the guy that wrote the songs in Tin Can and he quit. Oh. And then we spent a long time trying to put a band together. We finally found uh, Richard Barone and that band was called, became, was called A. But uh, <laughs> then I, I was gently nudged out after oh. you know, about a year <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and they became the Bongos. Which okay. is, was a, a Hoboken band, and um, at any rate, then I formed a band called The Individuals, and in around seven, 1979. He said the docks are dark and the warehouses wear me out. And I just want to talk. Did that, toured all over the country, played with all, you know, 
played with R.E.M. Oh, wow. Played with David Johansson, X. Oh, nice. Um, Lena Lovitch. Uh, uh, yeah, just he goes know, on oh, and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cure, The Cure. We opened for The Cure the first time they came to America. Oh wow! Which was kind of cool. That's pretty wild. And then uh, that band broke up. I had a band called Ridge to Live. Got a video, and that was the beginning of Bar None. That was actually the first Bar None release. <laughs> Prendergast, who had been a bartender at Maxwell's, the club where all these bands kind of, uh, you know, came to fruition. Right. Feelies, Yola Tango, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bongos. Tom Prendergast started Bar 9. He wanted to put out my record. And, okay. Uh, and then, but after, at that point, I, you know, I'd kind of like done all this touring. And I was just like, you know, sorry you put money into that video, but. I don't really want to go on the road. I just got married. It's really hard to get a bit, you know, I couldn't get all the guys that were on the record to commit. And I didn't really have the money to make them commit. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, the individuals had been more of a democracy. We were all in it kind of together. Okay. Okay. Uh, and this was more like, you know, my project, I guess. So it was kind of just, I realized how difficult it was. And I said, sorry, you put money into that video, but how about I become your partner? I found this band. Um, I think they're pretty good. And that was They Might Be Giants. Oh, wow. So I still am kind of amazed that as I was telling him, I was kind of like burning him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he let me become his partner. And so that's and all, that's still, some good salesmanship right there. <laughs> I think so. We're still great friends. He left the company and moved back to Ireland, maybe. Uh, it's been a long time now, 15, 18 years, something like that. Oh, wow. And, uh, and yeah, I've been running with uh, a couple other folks, Mark Lipsitz and uh, uh, Mike Sansevier and a variety of other people coming and going. And uh, it goes on. So I want to ask you a little bit more about Maxwell's because I grew up in New Jersey and I used to go. I didn't go to Maxwell's a, a lot, but I had been there and the place was an institution it was, I mean, it was a really cool place, but how did it, how did it become the institution that it became? Where, why, why did people come to Hoboken to go play in a, in, in a bar? Yeah. Right. I know. It seems kind of amazing. Yes. I was living right around the corner from the place and a friend of mine from high school had also moved to town and she said, ah, I just saw they had waitress jobs. And, uh, she said, uh, and they're looking for bands. I'm like, what? We were playing out at, at the place in Dover, New Jersey up at that point. Actually, there I played on a bill with uh, opening for Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and the oh. opening band was the Misfits. Oh, my God. So that was crazy. Wow. <laughs> um, Jeez. But, yeah, and I went in, and then Steve Fallon was there, and he was – fighting with his brother-in-law about taking all the Frank Sinatra records off the jukebox because he wanted to make a statement in Hoboken where 
you couldn't have a jukebox in Hoboken without Frank Sinatra records. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we just sort of hit it off. And I said, yeah, you know, I know a lot of bands because I was working for New York rocker magazine. Okay. And, uh, you know, basically it's like, yeah, great. Maybe, maybe you can, you know, I, I helped them fill the jukebox. I got a bunch of records for them. And, um, I started, I was the first person to book the club actually. And, oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I, I think I, I got paid like in dinner, you know, I did like a dinner. <laughs> it's a good chicken parm. And I booked the DBs and, um, the necessaries and the flesh tones and a band called come on and maybe nervous Rex. Anyway, I did it for a while. And then once Steve, I think, I think Steve then was like, okay, I got this now. I'll, I'll take over. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, he, he let us, the individuals rehearse in the, in the back, well, the back room before it had, you know, yeah, we rehearsed it for, for years. It was great. Oh, cool. And, I, and I, suddenly I remember one day, just like everybody that I knew from New York was suddenly living in Hoboken, all the musicians, you know, people would hear about it and they literally came from, you know, all over the country to live yeah. there. You know, there were just a ton of bands living there. I mean, it was really Williamsburg before Williamsburg. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then eventually, yeah, it's become a lot more gentrified. And, you know, the bands kind of all more or less have disappeared except for a few stalwarts. Yeah, David Tram's still over there. Dave Tram, yep, indeed. So he's he's, uh, holding on. But but then Maxwell's closed a few years ago. Yes. And what did that do to the, I mean, you were saying that the community was starting to dwindle. Did that, was it because of that, the, the uh, musicians kind of going elsewhere or was it? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, Todd Abramson who ran the club was frustrated because, you know, it was hard to park. Uh, Um, There were noise complaints. I mean, he, he didn't feel like he got all that much support from the city and, um, yeah, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, they've got an incredible page on Facebook where they there's uh, all kinds of shows that you know people talk about the shows yeah. that they saw and and they put those set lists out there oh and God. recordings. It's just yeah. I mean, I saw the replacements, REM, Soundgarden, Jeez, Flaming Lips, Man. Sonic Youth, Big Black. Um, the feelies, obviously they, yeah. they sort of became part of the early part of the scene, obviously Yola Tango. Oh yeah. Husker do. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, if you ever, Bob if it, Mold was like, uh, you know, that was like his clubhouse. Oh. Him and Steve were super tight and he'd be hanging out there all the time. Golden Palominos. Oh wow. Yeah, I could go on it, you know? Yeah. It, it was a place where people were, where bands would go just, it, it seems like just before they hit, hit it big they were at maxwell's yeah and there are a ton of tapes out there that people yeah. are sharing from these these incredible bands these bands are enormous like you're saying rem soundgarden who's yeah. do big black you know bands that that are, are legendary yeah new order Jeez. um yeah right after uh ian curtis committed suicide yeah new order came over wow you know it was like kind of like fresh in the air almost that's great yeah i I had um peter hook's son on not too long ago uh jack bates so little connection there but it's yeah it's it's it was amazing to see some the list because there's a pretty extensive list on their facebook page of of bands that have played there and yeah 
It's very long. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it, you know, it survived longer than CBGB's, probably longer yeah. than the bottom line. Um, you know, it was probably the longest running, you know, rock and rock club in the area. I don't think I anything, think right. you know, yeah. some folk clubs that lasted longer, but they were more just like, you know, cattle call joints. Now, has, know, it was always like a sort of an aesthetic, you know, to the way they put the, put the shows together there. And, right. you know, um, and it was just far enough removed from New York that they, you know, they could get the, the bands that were going to do a show in New York, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a few days before or after, and it wasn't considered competition often. I think that probably got harder later on, but yeah. But then I got to play like, um, you know, I, I talked to, I said to Todd when he was shutting all things down, I said, why don't you have the first bands that ever played the club, which was in this band a that with, with me and the bongos. So yeah, yeah. the final night of the club was, uh, the individuals, the bongos and a all played. And, oh, wow. uh, and that's what really got me like, wanting to make music myself again. Cause it was suddenly, it was like, Whoa, I'm back. You know, the you got, adrenaline is yeah. flowing. Yeah. It's like, now what do I do? You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and no, they, they packed the whole place. The streets were full of people that like, oh, couldn't wow. get into the club. They, they had DJs outside, man. And, uh, although then Justin Timberlake did a target commercial a few weeks later and had like about 10 times as many people. So it was, uh, it was that was humbling. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like this. It's um, hard to compete when you add, when, when you mix Justin Timberlake and target. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's some, that's some branding. Justin Timberlake is the target of music. So, <laughs> but yeah, so then I just started writing songs again and uh, I was like, I kind of thought of the replacements, like the first, three guys that I can get to, uh, commit. That's going to be the band, you know? And, uh, awesome. Um, Mike Rosenberg, who'd been a doorman at Maxwell's and played with Amy Rigby and different people. He signed up for bass and, uh, <clears throat> Rick Sherman who hadn't played since he'd been like in wedding bands, but hadn't really played in many years, but he was our CD sales rep. Oh, wow. And he's a great player. In fact, his, his son is a really remarkable jazz drummer that Ooh. during the pandemic, I go and, and see him play on the streets and people throw money into his uh, bass drum suitcase. Oh, wow. It's, it's great. He's like, you know, a great, you know, puts these great jazz groups together just on the fly and they, they play like uh, Columbus and 73rd Street and then they oh. pop up somewhere else. It's cool. That's why it's really been sustaining me lately. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then Ron Metz who had been in the human switchboard, yep. um, another band that lived in Hoboken for a long time. Yep. He became the drummer and we were off to the races and yeah. So just finished our second album. Now with the first album, were you, were those all new songs or yes. had, okay. Yeah. So you did, you weren't, you yeah. hadn't been writing or anything really over the past. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was sort of sort of writing all along, but you know, I wouldn't really finish things. I didn't okay. really feel like I had much to say and something about doing those shows. Just, I don't know. Something shifted my brain. I suddenly, you know, I could like, put some chords together and, and a melody. And next thing I knew I had like a song title. And once you have a song title, then you can really, you know, you know what you're singing about. Okay. Then you, the, the words just, you know, come together out of that. Okay. Okay. And, um, I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have good song titles for about 
20 years. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's been great. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So how did you come up with the, the, the name Cry for Help? Uh, Mike, the bass player, threw that out there and everybody laughed. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> so it was a sense of humor that got the name. Yeah, I think so. Okay. It felt about right, too. It's like, what are we, you know, you know I'm not a kid. Why am I doing this? Right. What does it mean? You know. <laughs> so there's no, there's no actual meaning besides just... Yeah, I think for years I I just I couldn't like come up for a reason like why should I be making music myself, you know, doing bar none. I always try to find bands that I think are better, you know, musicians than I am or better writers. (laughs) I mean, I I felt like I was pretty good, but I felt like, okay, I can find, you know, I I have like a a bar there. So I'd say most people on bar none are better than me. (laughs) <laughs> Except maybe the Mendoza line. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they, they kind of they are no they 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 made great records and they are uh, great writers. Oh, they I, they're amazing. I I really started to get into them when I was approached to have them on, and it was like like we were saying before everything uh, before we started really started recording it. I ended up having to revisit them because I knew of them, but I never really paid attention. Never really dove yeah. into the music and. Man, I missed out because the, their music is amazing, and I hear their sh- live shows were pretty crazy. Their live so. shows were generally a fiasco. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they're great people, and uh, they're friends of mine to this day, you know. So, with, with the first album, though, I wanted to ask you, this, both albums actually have a great power pop, 60s AM, 70s glam, is, is what I've been... What, what, what I, I was trying to, I was having a hard time kind of, and I don't want to say labeling it, but trying to, trying to find a way to relate it to people who haven't heard it yet. Right. Maybe, you know, listening to this, this podcast, hopefully. And, uh, I read that and I'm like, that's, that's the perfect description. 60s AM radio, power pop, 70s glamish kind of rock. And the lyrics are really clever. I love the wild one. The, the, the visual of the CIA on the dance floor. That was just hilarious. That I can't stop thinking about it since I heard it. So, and then yeah, it's weird. That was all before, you know, sort of Trump came into power. And, yeah. And there was all that kind of uh, FBI uh, intrigue. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> kind, of, kind of felt a little. I mean, it, it's also, you know, just kind of James Bondy stuff. But. It's, and you've got that, uh, the video for it is awesome, too. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And uh, 44. There's a section on there where you get this amazing screeching feedback. That's the stuff that I love. All the noise. Yeah. And that is that that won me over at that point. But you guys all have really great tone on on all the instruments. Are you guys using vintage equipment or is it new? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I, I have a 
uh, an old Telecaster, actually, that I played in the individuals. Oh, cool. That Gene Holder from uh, the DBs found for me back in the day. Oh, wow. And yeah, I still play that. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I guess he's got a, I want to say he's got a Fender Precision bass, I think. That Mike. Good and, choice. Uh, yeah, Rick, Rick goes through a, a different guitars. And, uh, but yeah, he, I think a lot of his, you know, he just has really great, uh, just a great feel. So wh whatever instrument he's playing on, he just, you know. Oh, the songwriting is great. The solos are amazing. I yeah. just, I, I was blown away getting, getting, trying to get familiar with, with the band. And I was really, really blown away. Yeah. He's a real, play. he's a real, uh, rock and roll rock star. Oh yeah. <laughs> man, I'm, it's funny on one song on the new record, um, the ride, which I wanted it to be a little bit different from a lot of the other songs, like really dry acoustic guitar, almost like velvet underground third album. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, you know, you got to pull back on all the reverb and the effects, but then Rick, I wanted him to play like a, you know, just like Chuck Berry licks, but I didn't want to play, play them too well. So we, while he was playing, we just kept like knocking the, the neck of the guitar, like you know, <laughs> squatting it so that he was just kind of like barely holding onto the guitar. You know, we're like idiot. Shady on my side and sunny on your side. Well, ain't it time to go for a ride? He still played pretty well. Oh, yeah. So the, the first album came out. Did you guys do any touring for that or were you? Well, you what we did was, yeah, we, um, yeah, we did a lot of, uh, we toured all over New Jersey. Yeah. Suddenly we were part of like a whole, we found this whole circuit and there's a lot of, you know, older people that they love going out and seeing music oh, well yeah. until the pandemic Yeah. and a bunch of different places to play and, you know, Montclair and Maplewood and, and you met all these other bands and we played with, you know, bands that we were friends with that were our age, like speed, the plow. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. That's really and then it all, everything shut down. And then it was like, well, now what do we do? Yeah. But so, now when, when everything shut down, you would, you would already, you, you finished with the, the second album at that point, right? Yeah. So you, except for this one song that we just added called whistling boy. Okay that kind of changed everything <laughs> when everything shut down, you couldn't play out. You couldn't even really meet up and, and rehearse or anything. We have not, we have not gotten together, man. Yeah. I mean, other than Rick and I in the separate control rooms, you know, in the set or yeah. isolation booths yeah. at the studio <laughs> and one kind of pathetic attempt to, uh, practice on zoom, but zoom doesn't see, you know, you can't actually play, in time on zoom like there's a little bit of a delay between yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, it was it was comical <laughs> i've seen some of these some other bands do these zoom live stream things and i'm like you know whenever i've been on zoom just for a podcast with more than one person if i got three or more people including myself <clears> on <throat> it there is 
buffering and all kinds of issues. I don't yeah. know how these guys are doing this. I guess they're all recording there, it on their own end. There must be some other platform that I haven't, I haven't uh, cracked yet. Yeah. Or they're pre-recording it. They may be, just, yeah, they may be recording each of their own yeah. segments and then... And, and syncing it up. Yeah, because yeah, there's just no way that that's <laughs> actually being broadcast like that. You can't... Yeah. It just doesn't work. But it sounds good. It, it sounds impressive. Yes. <laughs> when the, the pandemic really started to, to uh, spread, did that change how you guys had to approach releasing the album and promoting it? For, I, I waited a long time thinking maybe this too will pass or something. And finally, yeah. you know, I think just with the election and a lot of the, a lot of the songs, you know, they, I mean, they were, oh, you know, they've all been, most of them were written, you know, in the Trump era. Yeah. And they kind of reflect that. And I just felt like I got to get this out before the end of the year. You know, I just don't want it in my life. I don't want 2020 in my life. I don't <laughs> no, want this. God, no. I want to go beyond this, <laughs> everything for this year. But you know, there's, I mean, when Chris Stamey remixed, uh, other side of the dream, that was, that was kind of my, I wrote it kind of as like a, a, a old, old man apology to women, you know, kind of a me too. Yeah. Grapp grappling with that. But in the end, you know, with this like sirens and, and in the video that I made, you know, it really, it, it definitely took on like, uh, you know, a little bit more of the feel of the pandemic. I mean, I, I live in New York city now, so, you know, we got really yeah. hammered oh, in the yeah. beginning and yeah, something about that feels like that. Well, that's my favorite track off the new album. I'm all suited up and I'm ready to go to the other side of the song um but now uh, going uh, stepping aside a little bit as a executive at a record label what are you telling the artists on the label about the pandemic and, and their releases how do you how do you approach your label talent with pandemic news when you know what well i think i think we're generally um we had we had this one artist winter uh, a woman from Los Angeles and that was sort of in the pipeline already. So mm -hmm. we just kind of, I mean, we did move it back, but we, you know, she couldn't tour. Yeah. Oh, I remember the day, you know, everything fell apart with South by Southwest and it's yeah. just like, we put all this effort into trying to get our bands there and have showcases and whatnot. It just all just turned to dust. Uh. Um, but you know, winter has been great. She's like, she's done things where she's, um, kind of played for uh, music licensing people. Oh, cool. Or, you know, doing, you know, people are doing these live stream concerts. And, yeah. and I have to say, you know, the fans have stepped up as well. Like Bandcamp went from not really being that significant to really significant money gets generated from Bandcamp. Yeah. And there's that feeling of like, we want to, we want to support the artists. And that, that's, that's fantastic, you know? So, yeah. From the label side, you know, the streaming, if, if you actually had records that were had had a little bit of traction, they streamed on, you know, yeah. there, there wasn't a loss. And 
there have been all kinds of problems with uh, physical distribution even before the pandemic. So, you know, that just that's a whole nother set of issues. Yeah, but, I, I, was, I read a quote of yours saying that, you know, the music business has been hit with a lot this year. The collapse of the physical music industry, the closing of record stores and pressing plant and a key chemical factory burned to the ground. Yeah, the place that makes the stuff that lacquers are made out of. You yeah. Know, that, um, you know, you have to make a, a lacquer to cut the vinyl, right? Okay, okay. And there's only two plants in the world that do it. And one of them burned to the ground. Oh, gosh. Now there's one. At the same time, you had a, a big pressing plant that we use since the beginning of Bar None shutting its doors. Oh, wow. Before the pandemic, they just were like, you know, the owners of the building were like, man, we don't want, we don't want to rent to your kind of smelly business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we're, we're probably, yeah, probably going to turn into condos or something. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, so... It's been, uh, yeah, that's all been very trying. So this whole pandemic has really kind of shifted everything really quickly then, because you've got streaming, uh, you know, you got Bandcamp, the TikTok. Um. Yeah, we have a, hit, a TikTok hit with the front bottoms. Um, we just actually got this crazy Gucci ad that just ran today. Oh, wow. He's like, Gus Van Zant made these Gucci movies. Really? Like 14 minute movies that each one. And, and there's, I think there's going to be two feeling songs. Oh, in wow. it. there's definitely one. And I think there's a second. And, um, uh, we have another artist, little hag who I truly adore. Uh, uh, Asbury Park girl. Okay. And you know, she's trying, she's cooking up all kinds of stuff. She's doing this thing with this. If you've heard about this place, I'm blanking on the name of it, but you literally, they take pre-orders and then you cut individual vinyl records. Like each one is unique. Oh, you do a performance and it cuts. And then, you know, you I can, heard this. and you can throw someone's name into it. Oh my you know? God. So it's literally, you, you are the only person who owns that record. It costs about 25 bucks to get, you know, a song, wow. I think. Oh my <laughs> But it's gosh. your, you know, talk about a cool collectible item if the, yeah. if the artist blows up. So yeah, for, exactly. Uh, one of one. Look for, um, look for Little Hag, whatever happened to Avery Jane uh, on Spotify or your whatever streaming service you like fantastic record. One of the best songwriters I've worked with in, in the 30 years I've been doing this. Oh, maybe we should get on the podcast then. Check her out. I will. I will. So, all right. So back, back to your new album too. I appreciate you bringing it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Sometimes it comes and goes back to me. I don't, I don't know how that happens. Now, when you guys are writing the songs, are you the primary songwriter or is it collaborative? Yeah, well, like uh, the song Watch It Burn, mm -hmm. I had all these parts, but they were kind of, it was like a Frankenstein monster. I couldn't quite, you know, I just was like, Damn, this is the head, this is the left foot, you know? <laughs> and, and everybody sort of helped kind of smush it together and, okay. you know, come up with parts. And um, so that, I, I consider that one a collaboration. By the bedroom light, he dyed his hair red, took a little blue pill, and watched it go to his head. The cold cream came from the company store, 
ones are, are pretty much written by me. I might, um, the, the song come back. We played that forever. That we played that forever. It's really kind of, you know, to get like a groove that really worked on that. And it, it's kind of a, yeah, to me, it almost sounds like, you know, it's, it's almost like there's like a little pop song in the middle of it with these long, uh, yes. long stretches that lead up to the pop song. And then another stretch that leads away from the pop song. But to get that to all kind of, you know, work together was really hard. Oh, and yeah. Actually Ray Ketchum, the producer came up with a, a background vocal, like on the parts that go like, come on and show it. Mm -hmm. uh, he came up with this high harmony part that just totally made that kind of congeal in a way that it hadn't up to that point. I think it's a great song. And any song that mentions Mario Andretti, I'm all in <laughs> on. So I, that, that's a great reference for me. I, I had Betty and Veronica in there in an <laughs> earlier draft. Didn't make the cut, but... <laughs> Oh man! See, I I prefer Mario Andretti, but actually, I guess it was Veronica and Betty rhymed with <laughs> Mario, Mario Andretti. Andretti. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you could have worked all of that in, that would have been amazing. Yeah, this bridge too far. Yeah. <laughs> the album is coming out in December. Um, December eighteenth. Yeah. Okay, so what are you guys doing? Not, and as a record person, I would have never. Uh, you never put a record out in December, but you know, who, who knows what even matters. Yeah, exactly. You know? And may maybe no one will really be aware of it and, and over time. You know, I'm doing a bunch of videos and uh, maybe over time people will catch on to it or I don't even know. But. <laughs> well, that's the thing. This is all uncharted territory for everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. who, who knew that, this is going to happen and places like Grubhub and Uber Eats are going to ex have to explode, you know, and, and, and yeah. have, having somebody deliver your groceries to you. I mean, right. God, that it's just a crazy, I, know, I, get, I get the farm to people box every, uh, Oh, actually, right. I'm just, I'm finally shutting it down. There's just too many acorn squash at this point, but, <laughs> but it's been great. It's been great for all summer, you know? That's, I, I want to do something like that, but I've got three teenagers. I, I can't afford what it, <laughs> what it would cost me to, to fill those people up yeah, with, right. uh, by doing it that way. So I still have to do stuff like Costco. <laughs> <laughs> I have to buy food in bulk yeah. still. <laughs> I'm so glad, so glad they like cereal, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, they like it whether they like it or not. <laughs> I, I heard that Maxwell's is either has reopened or is, is reopening. Is it? Is it... It's literally got a new, it's got a new name, which I don't know what it is. It's ah, okay. going to be some kind of, I think an Italian restaurant. Ah. So it, it's, it's pretty much done unless, ah, you know, okay. I, I mean, it did reopen and I actually it was funny. I went there the night I, I saw the, uh, the show that that replacements live at Maxwell's. Yes. You know, I was at that show, right. Oh wow. Back in the day. So I thought, Oh, this will be cool. Like, I'll be in the same room and they're going to blast it. And it will be like re-experiencing the sonic, you know, thing from that day. But instead right. they played really quietly in the background. It was, oh. it was really <laughs> depressing. <laughs> but that one last thing to say, the, uh, I'm a huge replacements for one of my all time favorite bands. Oh, and, yeah. um, the, the new please to uh, meet me box set. Mm -hmm there's like a booklet in there and uh, Tommy Stinson, 
who I understand from your podcast made out with uh, Shannon McCardle once. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that until today. Um, but Tommy Stinson is wearing a Maxwell's T-shirt that I designed as an ad for New York Rocker. Oh, wow. And it's and it's like, wow, that is so cool. Look at that. So that, that was kind of a happy thing to see that. That is really wild. That's yeah. awesome. What else? So what else do we want to get out about this album? What it's, is it going to be released in a physical form at all? Or is it going to be more uh, you streaming? Know, if things open up and I kind of left it to the band, I said, you know, I want to just do this and we'll just do it. And then if, yeah. you know, we start playing shows again, maybe we'll do, uh, you know, CDs or vinyl as well. We did vinyl and, and CDs on the first record. Right. Uh, okay. But you know, I'm like, yeah, the, you got to kind of, you got to, I don't know. You got to kind of bunt, you know, in this, yeah. in this environment, I, I feel like bar none is doing that to a certain degree. You know, we're kind of, you asked that before. So mainly what we're doing with bands is suggesting, yeah, put out, you know, some singles and things to keep, your name out there and, and, and videos. And then yeah. when things open up, we can, uh, you know, drop more singles and then finally put out records, you know, when people can go out and play shows and whatnot. That is, that's what makes it so tough for me because I'm, I'm very hands-on, very tactile. I need physical copies of the music. If I, even if I pay for it and I get a download, I still yeah, feel like I, I don't yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I hear you. And I used you to know, be a photographer. The, so I, I, I love the artwork that comes with the stuff. And, yeah. and I think I, and maybe it was, it may have been the Mendoza line show, but even if, if I get a JPEG with the download, I'm not going to stare at it at my computer. You know, <laughs> if I buy a 45 or a CD or, or a, a full record, well, I'll get you the, maybe I can get you a copy of the original Mendoza line CD. Although no, there's going to be vinyl actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're, putting the vinyl out themselves. Oh, awesome. Um, you know, we're going to distribute it for them, but yeah, that's the kind of thing that's happening. You know, it's like, yeah, but if a band really, you know, yeah, do it yourself and maybe we'll take it over when things open up. If you're out there doing shows, I don't know. It, it's all up for grabs and just kind of, well, let's listen, just to rehype your uh, podcast a little bit. Uh, you've got a lot of great, uh, I mean, I'm really, thank you curious to dig into some of those things oh, you know the, the, uh, the brian coleman thing sounded really interesting i don't know there's a bunch of people there ted nicely just yes cool different people but it, yeah l1011 that was we did their first record oh okay and um i didn't even make that connection they, yeah they actually um you know they mentioned it like this movie helvetica yes that w literally you know because of that movie, it was about a typeface, right? It was like a documentary documentary about the typeface Helvetica. Yeah. And we just did a one-off record with them, actually. That that was, we just had the one record. Okay. That was their first album. Oh, and, okay. But because that movie, that documentary was about a typeface, every advertising graphic design person watched that movie and it had a ton of L1011 music in it. Yeah. And if they, so suddenly they were like, Oh, you know, I'm working on this. You know, it was always like sort of small ads, like with small budgets, mm -hmm. but we just got like almost like, you know, almost like hundreds of, of uh, licenses oh, on wow. that because of that movie, because art directors 
were exposed to it <laughs> wow. through that movie. And then the band toured on top of that just endlessly. Yeah. They were just out there all the time. And the combination of those two things and actually uh, Pandora. <laughs> yes. Let me talk about this. Pandora totally seized on them. I think they were like the perfect storm of, you know, they were indie rock, but they were kind of cool and slightly trippy and there were no vocals, you know, so yep. it could kind of be like, I don't want to say it was genreless, but it, it, it was just very kind of unique. I don't even know how to describe that record exactly. Yeah. You know, a little bit it, math rock. I mean, they ended up becoming more of like an EMD kind of thing as they went on, but there was just something like very open ended about that record. And, Pandora just, I, I, I described it as like a data ball. Like it just kept, you know, like this ball of data just kept growing like a, like the way you push a snowball. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just this like giant data ball that was just would show up in everybody's feed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I know, got, if you like the Grateful Dead, you'd get it. If you liked, uh, unrest you'd get it like new order you'll get it yeah it's yeah i got i got super lucky because i had jack bates on whose dad is peter hook from joy division and new order and then he does live streams every week with his dad on instagram so i watch those and uh uh christian from l1011 was on there and i and uh he he was just commenting in the in the comments, and Jack was talking about, oh yeah, Christian from L ten eleven saying this and this and this, and I threw out there. I said I said, hey, maybe we should get L ten eleven on, and he's like, yes, we need to get that. And so he hooked me up with L ten eleven. So it, it's just funny how I've had people on here and who know each other that I have no idea. Yeah. It seems like a very small world sometimes. It definitely all yeah, it all flows into each other, and yeah. you know, you, if you're around long enough. Yeah, you've you've got some connection to everybody almost, and you go in the supermarket and you hear songs and go like, "Oh yeah, you know." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. It is. It's it's really strange, and it's it's really flattering and, and humbling to hear you say that you enjoy the shows. I really do appreciate that. That me really does mean a lot. No, I, I you know. I, I was I was very impressed, and like I said, I was just <laughs> I was laughing out loud at the, at the Mendoza line. Oh my god! Well, uh, <laughs> I've, I've been lucky enough to to hang on for a little, over two years with this podcast. I've done some sports in the past. I've got probably well, I haven't released 150 episodes, but I've probably recorded wow. at least that many. So wow! So I'm I've got a bunch in the pipeline right now that I'm editing. Just so where can people find the album? How can how can they contact it? I'm sure you know through Bar None's website and all. But yeah, it's actually on. Uh, uh, it's not on Bar None. It's actually through Rhyme and Reason. Oh, I, I know somebody at Bar None though who might be interested in you <laughs> yes yeah, so it's uh through um it's through rhyme and reason but yeah it's on Bandcamp. it's on all the streaming services and uh yeah someday hopefully you know be etched into vinyl and uh is there a social media presence where people can follow you and get news yeah we got an instagram page glenn morrow's cry for help i got my own uh instagram handle like a camera two l-i-k-e camera it was <laughs> not not the smartest name probably but like a camera too um <clears throat> i like this i'm a photographer i like i always like like <laughs> yeah, it, a, 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 
a, a joke on like a virgin and like a like a camera. <laughs> well, Glenn, thank you so much for for spending. Guys, I've kept you for an hour at this point. It's been a blast. And uh, it, talking about Maxwell's, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so it uh, it, it brought back memories and some of the really cool shows. I, I, I fantastic got a chance to see there. So. Well, thank you for doing this good work and getting the word out and all this stuff. So, It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.